Let's get our Bibles open to Luke chapter 7 as we continue to march verse by verse through the book of Luke. We're actually beginning a brand new series that's going to cover chapter 7, 8, and 9. And it's all leading up to the most important question that has ever been asked. It was asked by Jesus to his disciples, and it was kind of the final exam. And if you are paying attention as a disciple, what happens in chapter 7, 8, and 9 will give you the answer to the question that Jesus presents in chapter 9, verse 20. Here is the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. He said this, who do you say that I am? Brett, help me out with the PowerPoint, if you would. The, the, uh, the question that Jesus asked there in Luke chapter 9, verse 20, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who had been paying attention to what had happened in chapter 7, 8, and 9, gives the correct answer. The correct answer to that question is the Christ of God. And that's not just an answer. You've got to get right on a test. If you provide the right answer to that question, it's going to reorient the way you live your life. And so a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about who Jesus is. Jesus is the most well-known figure in human history. But there's also a sense in which Jesus is the least known person in human history because people sometimes fail to give the correct answer to the question, who do you say I am? Uh, Muslims would answer that question by saying, well, Jesus is a good man, he's a good prophet, but he's not the final prophet. Um, Mormons would say Jesus is the created half-brother of Satan. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses would say that Jesus is not God, but he's actually the archangel Michael. Michael, not Micah, Michael. And uh, there are some people that uh, are kind of anti-establishment rebels, and they really like Jesus because they see Jesus as this, this anti-establishment model of revolutionary force. And, and uh, they just kind of see, if we follow Jesus, we'll just turn the whole world upside down. Um, there are some progressive theologians that would say you really can't know. There's just really no way to know who Jesus is by reading the Bible because the Bible is just written by a bunch of fallible men. And um, we do know that he was a good man, he was a good teacher, but we just really can't know what he taught. We do know that he, that he wants us to you know, feed the hungry and, and help the disadvantaged. And, and of course, all those things are true, but those that are the most disadvantaged are the ones that are infected by sin. And Jesus didn't just come to relieve human suffering. He came to relieve eternal suffering. And we know that by what we have in this book. So a lot of people miss the answer. And, and this is the most important question that you have to get right. And so I'm going to encourage you over the next several weeks to pay attention like Peter paid attention because what Jesus does in chapter 7, 8, and 9 reveals who Jesus is. Now, as we jump into this, let me just ask you here to look in chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to be introduced to a man who had great power and a woman who had great pain. Luke writes this, after he had finished these sayings, we'll just pause right there. If you've been following along, the 
last part of chapter 6 included this teaching of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Plain. These were the teachings of Jesus. And so when we read the scripture, well, there are some things that we read that Jesus did, and there's some things that we read that were actually things Jesus taught. And just by way of review, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus actually taught us what to do with these four things. What does a disciple of Jesus do with power, passion, pain and people. A few weeks ago, we looked at what we call the Beatitudes. This is the attitudes of the followers of Jesus. And we learned that Jesus says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. And so there's this attitude of poverty that we embrace. We realize we, we owe this incredible debt to Jesus. We can't pay it back. We're actually spiritually bankrupt. And we embrace that because we know that it's Jesus that pays our debt. And so what do you do with your power? Do you use your power to control people or do you use your power to help people? And then he's told us what we do with our passions. Do you remember what he said? Blessed are the hungry for they will be satisfied. So we hunger and thirst for all kinds of stuff that can't ever really satisfy. So we gotta know what to do with all these passions, these passions to, to be rich, and these passions to have great relationships, and these passions to accumulate, and these passions to achieve. Christians handle their passions differently. And Jesus says if you hunger now, you're gonna be satisfied later. Then he told us what to do with our pain. We all experience pain, and that's why he said, blessed are those who weep now because they're going to laugh. Jesus is going to relieve that pain, but you got to know what to do with the pain. And then finally, he said, you got to know what to do with the people that hate you and despise you and persecute you. And we're supposed to love our enemies and bless those that persecute us. And so these followers of Jesus, we have a completely upside down way of thinking about our power, our passion, our pain, and the people who hate us. So what we're going to be introduced to now in chapter 7 are these two people that are going to vividly illustrate what followers of Jesus do with their power. And then secondly, we're going to be introduced to a woman who's going to teach us what to do with our pain. You ready for that? So verse 1 goes on. It says, after he'd finished these sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was the adopted hometown of Jesus. He hung out there more than any other town. He, uh, he, he loved to hang out with the people of Capernaum. And here's where he's introduced to a man. Verse 2, now a centurion had a servant. Let's explain a centurion. Remember at this time, the, uh, the land of Israel, God's promised land, even though the people of God were there, it was being occupied by an invading Roman government. And these political and military officials were known as centurion. It describes a man who was in charge of a hundred other men. Now, I'm looking around the room, and I see some good men in here, but there are very few men in here that are actually in charge of a hundred other men. Some of you may be some business owners. Some of you may be educators or coaches. And you probably have some, some men or women um, that are under your authority. This guy was one of the most powerful men in Israel at the time. He was a centurion, and he had great power, had great authority, and he had great 
control. Now, here's the first thing that we're going to learn in answer to the question, who do men say that I am? Here's the first answer we've got to give back to him. We say Jesus is in control. Jesus is the perfect balance of compassion and control. And so the first thing we're going to learn is Jesus is in control. And in order to learn that, Luke introduces us to a man who had a hundred men under his control, under authority. And yet, notice what happens to one of the 100. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick, sick to the point of death, who was highly valued by him. This may have been the first time in this centurion's life that something was happening outside of his control. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you this week had something happen outside of your control? All the mothers raise your hand right now. It's like, man, I got five little things that are outside of my control. It's like my job description is to keep them under control. And they just seem like they are not with the mother program here, right? And so, listen, all of us, this is, the, this is true of everybody in the room. Everybody in the room has some measure of control. Um, you have some measure of power and you have some measure of authority. Some people have more authority and more power and more control than others, but everybody here has some measure of control. This guy in the story, he had so much control that he might have been tempted to think, I don't need anybody or anything I've got it all under control. You understand, the more authority and the more power you have, the, the more you are tempted to think you don't need Jesus. There is an illusion of control that exists with each one of us until a crisis happens. And for the first time in his life, this centurion may have come face to face with the realization, whatever control, whatever power, whatever authority I have, it is limited and it is not sufficient for what I need in this moment. Everybody here has some measure of influence. You say, oh, I'm an insignificant person. I don't even think anybody knows. No, listen, you have, you have power to influence others. You have power to influence others with your words. You have power to influence others with your finances. And so everybody gets to choose what you do with your power and control. And it may not be until something happens outside of your control that it actually reveals whether or not you believe that statement, that Jesus is in control. So let's find out whether or not the centurion believed it. Notice here in verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, what do you think he heard? What do you think he heard about Jesus? 
he was hearing that Jesus had ultimate control. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He heard about a man who had more power, more control, and more authority than he had. And he immediately wants a meeting with this guy. And so it says, he sent to him the elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. So at the point of his crisis, he reaches out to Jesus and draws him near. You know, that's true. Every time you face a crisis, you're faced with a choice of whether or not you are going to invite Jesus into the situation or you are going to get mad and run from Jesus and maybe blame Jesus for the thing that's spinning out of control. That's true of every one of us. And this centurion made the right choice. He said, I want Jesus to come near. And so he did what he could to invite Jesus into the crisis. And it says in verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So they're like trying to manipulate Jesus to actually come and have a meeting and do what the centurion wants him to do. And they falsely say that the centurion's worthy. This centurion was a really good guy. This centurion had the power to either make the Jews' life miserable or make it really good. And he chose to make it really good. It says that he actually built the Jews a synagogue. And that helps us to understand what we would do if we really believed Jesus is in control. Some of you say Jesus is in control. If he's in control, I'm going to challenge you to make a commitment here this morning. I'm going to challenge you to make seven commitments here this morning. Here's the first one. If I really believe Jesus is in control, I will use my power for good and not for evil. I, I think it's so interesting. It says that he built them a synagogue. He wasn't Jewish. And yet there was something about what was taught in the synagogue that attracted this centurion to that synagogue. What happened in the synagogue? The synagogue was the place, not so much for worship, it, you worshiped in the temple. The synagogue was like the classroom. It was the gathering place for the Jewish community, but what happened in the synagogue, we've already read what Jesus did in chapter six. He walked into the synagogue, they unrolled the scroll, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. It's where the word of God was taught. And there was something in this centurion that had an appetite for what happened in the synagogue. He had an appetite for the word of God. And so he used his power and his influence for good. And you will too, if you truly believe Jesus is in control. Um, as you've already heard this morning, if you were paying attention earlier this morning, we're building something back here too. We're, we're trying to expand some ministry space around here. And there are hundreds of people in this church that are using the power of their wealth to build something where disciples can be made and the word of God can expand and go further. And that is an evidence that you really believe that Jesus is in control. Now, if you say Jesus is in control, but you will not pry off your hands of every little penny you have, use that all for yourself, you're just demonstrating that you want to control all your stuff. 
This guy says, I am willing to release some of my stuff so that others can benefit from the power of my wealth. And so it's a commitment that we make. If I believe Jesus is in control, I'll use my power for good. The story continues here. It says in verse 6, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Do you see the word under there in verse 6? Underline the word under. What was the significance of this centurion saying, I don't want you to come under my roof? Well, in that culture, it was very symbolic. For a, for a person that, that ranked higher than you, you would never ask that person to come under your roof. It would be like saying, you are under me and I am over you. And this centurion shows his humility, first of all, by saying, I am not worthy for you to do anything for me. And I'm not going to ask you to come under my control. You really believe Jesus is in control? You want to test that? How much of your prayer life is spent trying to convince Jesus to do something for you? Are you really putting yourself under the control of Jesus in your prayer life? Or are you trying to get Jesus to come under your control? Listen, followers of Jesus understand Jesus doesn't owe me anything. And yet there's a whole wave of teaching and preaching out there that says anything you want, you just tell Jesus and he is obligated to answer that prayer. This centurion didn't believe that. Even though he was a man of control, he was a man of influence, he was a man of power, what did he do? He understood where he ranked in relation to Jesus. I'm not asking you to come under my roof. I am not worthy that you do anything for me. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume. Love that phrase. Do not presume that Jesus should do anything for you. He says, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 8. We would expect this centurion to introduce himself. Hi, I'm a centurion. I am a man in authority. But that's not what he says. What does he say? He says, hi. I'm a centurion. I'm a man under authority. Apparently, the centurion had a boss too. And rather identifying himself for the power that he had, he identified himself 
for the power he did not have. He identified himself not as a leader, but as a servant. There, there are some leaders in our community that attend our church. There are some business owners. And, and, and sometimes I'm in the presence of one of these very uh, high-ranking people in our church. And I, I've watched them introduce themselves to people that didn't know who they were. And I've watched a business owner say something like, Hi, I'm Joe. I work at X company. And I'm like, dude, you own X company. Why don't you flaunt that, you know? Let them know who you are. And they don't do that. You know why? Because they, they have the same attitude of the centurion. I am not presenting myself as anybody any higher than anybody else. In humility, I realize I don't have ultimate control. Whatever power, notice what he says. He says, I am a man set under authority. Who set him there? He's understanding that God is the one who ultimately sets where people are in authority. And so that's why I would say to you, if you really believe Jesus is in control, it's going to change the way that you view authority. Notice, if I really believe Jesus is in control, I will trust Jesus is in control of my authorities. Who are your authorities? Do you have any authorities? You have a boss, you have a manager, you have a parent, um, you have a pastor, a spiritual authority. And Listen, if you really believe Jesus is in control, it would change the way you respond to authority. Did you notice what this, this servant said? He's like, I understand how authority works. And so I've got some men and I say, go, and they go. And I say, stay, and they stay. You see, this is the way it's supposed to work with human authority, is God allows human authority to direct our lives in ways that we would never choose. And if you really believe Jesus is the ultimate authority, you will obey human authority. I know that what I'm about to say will be shocking and hard for you to believe, but when I was a teenager, I had a problem with authority. I, I know, I know I, not anymore. I don't have a problem anymore. I mean, I, and actually, I still struggle with, with being told what to do. Do you? Am I the only one in the room that has trouble going where the authority tells me to go and doing what the authority tells me to do? Yeah, this is the human condition. But people that really know the answer to the question, who do you say I am? Believe that Jesus is ultimately in control. Jesus is bigger than my boss. Jesus is, is more powerful than my parent. When I was a teenager, when I was struggling with this, I found a verse in Proverbs that really changed my attitude toward this. It's Proverbs 21.1, and this is what it says. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the streams of water, he turns it wherever he wants it to go. So this verse is obviously about authority. A king, get it, get it, the king, I mean, he's got ultimate authority, right? But the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And if the Lord wants that king to make a decision over here, what does the Lord do? He moves his hand over here. 
And if he wants him to do something over here, the Lord's hand moves it over here. It's like when you go water the flowers later on, sometime in July when the weather gets above 60 degrees around here, and uh, you actually go, you get a garden hose out there, and you put the garden hose in your hand, you're like watering this flower over here, and, and pretty soon that one's had enough to drink, and you got to water this one over here, and all you have to do is do what? Is that hard? No, and it's not any harder for God to turn the heart of any authority wherever he wants it to go. You can't obey a human authority until you ultimately believe Jesus is the ultimate authority. And that's what this centurion is coming to realize. So if we really believe Jesus is in control, I will trust Jesus with my authorities. And then this, I will not worry when things happen outside of my control. Are you a control freak? Turn to your neighbor and say, yeah, you're, you're kind of a control freak. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's something in us. There's a little control freak that lives on the inside of every one of us. And so when, when I get sick and when I don't have enough purchasing power and I lose a job and there's a relationship and a misunderstanding, when things happen outside of my control, I get older I lose my mental capacity, I lose my physical strength, I maybe lose my influence, I might lose my position of authority. Do you freak out? You can't live where you wanna live and you can't do what you wanna do and you can't buy what you wanna buy. Listen, if you freak out and you're filled with anxiety, worry and fear when things happen outside of your control, it is a warning sign that you ultimately really don't believe Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus is in control. This guy comes to Jesus and asks him to do something that he, the centurion, did not have the power to do. He had to lean into a power outside of himself. And so what happens is God uses things like sickness, a lack of money, relational conflict. God uses all of that to strip us of the illusion of control that we've been living with. And if at that time you will do what this centurion did, you will see miracles and that's what happened with this guy. And so he says, come, and, and he invites him to do something. Notice what happened in verse 9. Jesus heard these things, and he marveled. Jesus marveled at a man? He marveled because of this. He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus does a miracle for this guy. And here's the truth. I will demonstrate my faith by yielding control to Jesus. 
Jesus makes a connection between our relation to control to faith. Only those who believe God is ultimately in control will actually respond to to the human authorities around us. And so every time you submit yourself to a human authority, it is, an, it is an act of faith to believe that Jesus is ultimately in control. You believe it? You believe Jesus is in control? You get the first answer correct? All right. Now remember, I told you there's two stories here. That's what we learned about a man who had great power. What did he do? He released control, and ultimately he believed Jesus was in control. There's another thing that we're going to learn out of this. It's with the second story, and it's not about control. It's about compassion. Jesus perfectly balances compassion and control. I want you to notice here in verse 11, a completely different story. This one is about a woman in pain. Soon afterward, he entered a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So as Jesus walks into the town alive, there is a man being, being carried out of the town dead. Jesus walks right into a funeral procession. And he's moved with compassion. Notice what happened. He notices this was the only son of his mother. I can relate to that. I'm the only son of my mother. Anybody else the only son of your mother? How many of you are the favorite son of your mother? <laughs> Okay, good. It's only because you're the only son of your mother, right? If she had another one, she'd... Anyway, that, happy Mother's Day. Anyway, this is the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable town, a crowd from the town was there. Notice the condition of this woman. Now, first of all, notice that she, she is a woman, Luke, over and over throughout his gospel as he's writing, he is elevating the significant role of women in the story of Jesus. It's not enough for Luke just to tell a story about a great, powerful man. Right on the heels of that, he's like, now listen, Jesus had compassion for women in pain. And this was a woman who had experienced incredible pain. First of all, it says that she was a widow. She had lost her husband by death. And I'm sure that in this room, there's probably some, some widows that have experienced the loss of a husband and the grief and the anguish and the pain that that's caused you. There's some other women in the room that may have lost a husband through divorce. There are some other women in the room that may have lost a husband just because he's become very distant from you. And you may think, I might as well be a widow. He doesn't talk. He doesn't express any compassion to me. And, and there are women in this room living in pain. And this story is put in our Bibles to let us know Jesus is aware of your pain. And he's compassionate towards you. Jesus recognized that about this widow. But the second thing was not only was she a widow, she was attending the funeral of her son. She was about to bury her son, something that no woman should ever have to do. And there are some women in this room that have attended the funeral of your son. There are some women in this room who have miscarried and you weren't able to carry that child to term. And there are some women in this room that 
for whatever reason, you don't understand it, but God hasn't opened your womb. There are some women in this room that have prodigal children who are spiritually dead and you're praying for a resurrection. The mothers in this room, Jesus has compassion for you. Notice what he does because of his compassion. In verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. So who do you say I am? Here's the second way we respond. Jesus is compassionate. Notice in the book of Lamentation, this incredible verse about the compassion of the Lord. It's one of the the most treasured attributes of God. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Even if you wore out the mercy of the Lord yesterday through your sin and your suffering, if you woke up this morning, you get a whole fresh batch. It's new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to those, to the soul who seek him. Notice, the writer of this scripture is saying this, my portion is in the Lord. I will hope in him. The lesson is this, we should never look to a husband, a child, a father, a husband, a mother, a parent, we shouldn't ever look to any other human being to do for us what only the Lord can do. In the scripture, in, um, in Isaiah chapter 54, it tells us that the, that the Lord, our maker, is our husband. And so if you've lost a husband, you've lost a child, turn to your maker. He's compassionate on those who will lean into him. And understand this, because of Jesus' compassion, I don't ever have to weep alone. Jesus says to you this morning, do not weep. He provides all the strength you're going to need. And then this, if we really believe Jesus is compassionate, I can trust Jesus' compassion and control over those I love. For some of you that do have prodigal children and you're wondering, when are they going to wake up? When when are their hearts going to be made alive to the truths of Christ that you treasure so much? You can trust the control and the compassion of the Lord with those children. If you try to control them, you'll push them away. If you only exercise compassion and never discipline and authority, then they'll grow up living with the fact that there's no consequences for sin. And so there's got to be this balance as a parent, the way that our father parents us with complete compassion and total control. Jesus is the perfect balance of both. And then this, if we believe that Jesus is compassionate, I will glorify God as the God of compassionate control. Notice the end of the story here. Look at verse 14. Jesus didn't just have compassion. He exercises his control. Then he came up and touched the briar and the bearer stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. I've always wondered what he said. I mean, what, is he telling us where he was? And like, you know, I don't know. Is he going to write a novel, you know, dead for 15 minutes? And I don't know. I, but he started talking. You know what I think he started saying? Something like this. Jesus is in complete control. 
Jesus is so compassionate. Thank you. And notice what he does. I love this. Jesus gave him to his mother. It was a gift of compassion. Verse 16, fear seized them all, you think. Last time you went to a funeral, if the dude kind of started talking, you'd think you'd be a little scared too. Yeah, that's what happened. But then they got around to glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole region of Judea and Granger and Elkhart, Mishawaka and South Bend and all the surrounding countries. And we're still talking about it today. Why? Because we believe Jesus has control over life and death. He's got control over our lives and our death. And for those of us that will repent of sin and trust him and believe who he said he is, our resurrection's coming too. Because of Jesus' resurrection, he has power over life and death and sin and suffering. And we can trust him in our pain. Let me ask you to stand together. And let me just simply ask you with heads bowed, eyes closed, what kind of pain are you feeling today? Would you bring in here? What is it that feels like it is outside of your control? I'm looking at some powerful men and powerful women. You've got great authority. But God will use the crisis moments when something happens you can't control to give you the opportunity to invite him in, to believe with all of your heart, who do you say I am? Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us, even in the crisis moment. And I, I pray for moms who have prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. God, would you do in them spiritually what you did physically for this son? Bring a resurrection, open their eyes warm their hearts to the gospel. Thank you for your resurrection that gives us hope that the grave is not the end. I pray for men and women around this room that we would learn by faith to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name.